Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. This is Brave Little State. I'm Peter Hirschfeld. It's late November, and I'm wading through a dark basement on the outskirts of downtown Montpelier. There's ankle-high water, and it smells like raw sewage. A little sticky down here. I'm not sure that we have power. I don't know where else we This basement's been flooded for five months, ever since eight inches of rain drowned this city in the worst flood anyone who lives here can remember. So, my guess is it leaked in from... It looks like your foundation has been giving way for a while. But That's Dan Melind, a local pastor. Yeah, just be careful where you walk because we don't know where this might drop off. Dan's been helping lead volunteer recovery efforts in the area since July. Early on, in the immediate aftermath, there was no shortage of attention on the area. State and national media were broadcasting images of people canoeing down Montpelier's Main Street and sharing stories of the immediate, almost unbelievable devastation. When I visited last month, the streets were mostly cleaned up. Businesses were starting to reopen. And then, just a few days before publishing this piece, yet more rain hit the state, and it combined with snowmelt to make things even worse. Generally speaking, the flooding isn't as severe as what happened over the summer, but there's no comfort in that fact for people living in hard-hit areas or who are in more vulnerable situations. That's because the crisis caused by the summer floods never went away. Even though the water had temporarily receded before the latest round of extreme rain, it's been unfolding this whole time. You just had to look a little harder and walk into a few basements. This basement we're sloshing around in isn't Dan's, but he's helping the family that lives here, a mom and two teenage boys, get their home back in order. You know, everyone's different, you know. I hate it when we find stuff like this where there's still water in the basement. And it's sort of like, golly, you know. I mean, obviously it can't be too healthy upstairs, you know, with the mold and everything else, you know. You got two kids living up there too, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's just not not a great option. For Dan, sometimes recovery work looks like tearing out drywall and insulation to get rid of the mold. Sometimes it's replacing an electric panel that got submerged in floodwaters and became a fire hazard. And sometimes, even after so many months, it means a small crew of volunteers firing up a couple sump pumps. Hey, Terry, you in a safe place I can turn that one on? The white one? And pumping a foul brew out of the basement of an old house. It's draining good. We're down two, three inches already. I followed up with Dan after the latest round of rain, and he says the basement is holding up pretty well so far. 
But getting rid of the standing water was just the beginning. The family that lives there had been without a functioning furnace until Dan's crew remediated their basement in late November. So, they're doing okay for now. The problem is, there are a lot of other households out there that still don't have proper heat, or are still waiting on help. From Vermont Public, welcome to Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience. Today's winning question prompts us to check in on how we're doing five months out from one of the state's biggest disasters in recent memory. I I almost can't wrap my head around it, you know? Um, It's really unbelievable. And here's the big picture. More than 6,000 Vermont households have reported damage to their residences due to the July floods. State and local officials say hundreds are still either displaced or living in substandard conditions as a result. And that was all true even before Vermont experienced another major flooding event. Just as our team was finishing this episode about the state of recovery from the last floods, another round of flood damage and school closings and power outages a mudslide in St. Johnsbury, evacuations in Moortown. Governor Phil Scott spoke to how familiar this all feels. As we continue the recovery from this summer's flooding, I know this is the last thing Vermonters want to see right now. In this episode, reporter Pete Hirschfeld talks to some of those who were hit hardest over the summer to get a better sense of how they're faring. There is a huge emotional toll that's being shouldered by survivors of the floods. Help can't come fast enough, and it's extremely frustrating. People's lives are still uh, in chaos. And they're living in tents, and they're living in campers, and they're living in unsafe conditions, and people are going to die. And that's the reality. Pete also explores some of the local recovery responses that are showing the most promise in a state with more severe and frequent flooding events. It's a different kind of labor than, hey, call your strong friends and have them bring shovels. That conversation is now possible in a way it might not have been before. We're a proud member of the NPR Network. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. I've been a Vermont resident for most of my life and a reporter here for 20 years. And seeing the city of Montpelier underwater in the early morning hours of July 11, 2023, is definitely one of the most intense experiences I've had in this state. Daybreak was the first time I fully appreciated the scale of the disaster. 
Maybe it was hearing the eerie buzz of fire alarms that had been triggered by floodwaters, or watching Swiftwater rescue crews ferry a local woman and her beloved pet rabbit from a submerged apartment building. And it turns out that as these scenes were playing out, I was only about a tenth of a mile away from today's winning question asker. Because I was in Montpelier at the time, I couldn't get home by any roads for, uh, I think it was four days. That's Sophie Veltrup. Sophie lives in Woodbury, about halfway between the Barrie-Montpelier area and Hardwick. She got stuck at her partner's place in downtown Montpelier during the July floods, and she can vividly recall what she was feeling that morning. Uh, Definitely shock and fear, not so much for myself because I was in a position of safety, but for, you know, this town that I love and being able to see clearly people are going to be hurting from this. Like a lot of you out there, Sophie was moved to act in the days right after the flood. I spent some time at the Capitol Theater pulling up carpets with the family who owns it. And then in Barrie, we just like cleaned up some yards of some homeowners. She's been following stories about flood recovery in the Vermont media ever since. And a lot of the stuff she's reading and watching and hearing hasn't sounded good. I think it was just a couple days ago that there was the news on like the FEMA funds are based on like what your property was valued at. And so people who had lower property values like just actually aren't eligible for the help. And it's like, aren't those the people who should be most eligible for the help? So so that's the kind of stuff that's like, there are big gaps here that are like letting the people who are in the most vulnerable situations fall through them. I think a lot of Vermonters, Sophie and me included, probably figured that some combination of state and federal agencies, like FEMA, would swoop in after the flood and get everything at least close to right for the people who were truly devastated. I think at the beginning I had more of a naivete that these systems were already in place to help people get back on their feet, and it would be hard but that the solutions were there. As Sophie has noticed, that hasn't exactly been the case. And so her question the one so many of you want answers to as well, stems from her concerns for the well-being of flood survivors. So I would like to know how communities who were hit the hardest by the 2023 flooding are doing now, going into the winter, and what locally driven solutions have been proven effective both for recovering and rebuilding better. So this is like two almost separate things it feels like right yeah like how are people doing like what's the state of recovery yeah but also what have we learned from this experience with this flood that we need to incorporate into some sort of systemic reform that the next time this happened four months on we're not talking about why are all these people that don't have their houses ready for winter yeah yeah it seems like communities are really reckoning with like oh climate change effects are like here at our doorstep and thinking about that in a new way. So, since we have two distinct questions here, let's take them in order. First, how are communities hit hardest by the 2023 floods doing? I took that one to the United Community Church in downtown Johnson last month. I wanted to find out what the people most involved in recovery efforts have been seen on the ground. I think people are realizing it's not getting better as fast as they wanted it to. Sherry Marcelino is a so-called SOS disaster clinician. 
SOS, as in Starting Over Strong, one of the many flood recovery programs that have sprung up in Vermont since the summer. By day, she's a mental health counselor. I think people are realizing, wow, it's cold out, and I'm scared because my heat isn't working the way it should. Um, my house isn't insulated the way it should be. Um, I don't have the money in my bank account to fill my fuel tank. At, you know, at this point, being five months out from things, I th- one of the other things I think we've seen with some people is just being frozen. Greg Stefanski is one of the people who started the Lamoille Area Response Network, or LEARN as they call it around here. He says that even for people who have received relief money or other aid, many have not been made whole or anything close to it. Um, They've sort of been stuck in this unhealthy, unsafe situation, but safe enough to to, to sort of exist in the space. When they look around the physical space and and see sheetrock and insulation torn off from walls, um, the heater isn't consistently, you know, working. They've maybe had one experience with FEMA, but were overwhelmed by that. So, how do you want to do this? We could, we can walk. Let's walk. Okay. Um, okay. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna grab my coat and I'll leave my other stuff here. I joined Greg earlier this month on a walk on Johnson's Main Street, one of the epicenters of the July flood. So the water was coming from the Giant, and then the Lamoille is actually back there. So this section here got hit really, really hard. So we lost our market. Um, the post office is also lost their space, but they've been operating out of a mobile unit. But we, you know, we're probably talking a couple of feet of water. This was just a, a little lake. You know, it, you have to look, you know, as we're walking down Railroad Street here, to really see the impact or to see that sign on a door that says, says the space is condemned. But this is this crisis is still unfolding. It's the waters may have receded, the tanks have been cleaned up, but people's lives are still uh, in chaos. We turn onto Railroad Street, which sits on a low-lying zone near the confluence of two major rivers. Greg points out a yellow-sided, two-story home with an official notice on the door warning people not to enter. This is, this is Rick's place. Rick is Rick Opperly. He and his wife Pam are social services workers who are currently renting an apartment in Morrisville, since their Johnson home is still uninhabitable. Greg says the town doesn't feel the same without them, especially not on Halloween, a holiday the Opperleys take seriously. They have a log of the number of trick-or-treaters that have come to their house every year. Well, the highest one we ever had was 420, and that was quite an event. Rick and Pam have been keeping track of trick-or-treaters for a long time. They moved into their Railroad Street home about 35 years ago. It was a big moment in their quest for the Vermont dream. I mean, I'm 67 years old, so I grew up at a time when uh, home ownership was part of the process of um, establishing equity. July wasn't the family's first go-round with flooding. In 1995, he says they had about two feet of water in the house. This past summer, it was four feet. And uh, right now it's sitting empty with... uh, no insulation and no sheetrock or any kind of finish uh, to the downstairs. So it's, it's kind of stark when you walk in the house. They're looking into a possible buyout from FEMA, but that process can take months and even years. 
Rick says it's unclear if or when that might happen, and they're not sure how much they'd get in exchange for the house. In the meantime, they've skipped from temporary living situation to temporary living situation, and have been at the apartment in Morrisville for a couple months now. From a perspective of um, being settled in one place for 34 years, we've moved four times now in four months. So, yeah, that's quite, quite a shift. It's not just Rick and Pam who've been moving around a bunch. They're also raising their grandkids, a 17-year-old who goes to Lamoille Union High School and a 6-year-old who attends Johnson Elementary. It's the kids that Rick is worried about most. It's kind of like you have an orientation, you have an understanding of where things are and how things go because you've been in one place. And I guess the best term to describe it's disorientation now. And it's taken us a couple of months to get comfortable with the chaos, I guess, is the phrase I use with people. And, uh, you know, that's a daily thing, really. You never really get comfortable with chaos, but you make adjustments and you make it work. Or at least you try to. There are large financial consequences associated with the kind of property loss Rick has experienced. And not just to the house he and Pam had so much equity in. FEMA initially provided the family with assistance for temporary housing. That offer lapsed two months ago, so they're covering costs out of pocket for now. For a couple human services workers, adding a substantial rent check to the monthly household budget isn't easy. It's going to take time, maybe years even, to uh, come back from this. This was, this was pretty significant. The problem is that some people can't wait years. They need help now. Cherie Carr lives on a dirt road in West Burke. The 59-year-old Navy veteran grew up in this house and learned early on how to live close to the bone. I grew up poor. I grew up knowing what it meant to be without, knowing what it meant to be hungry. The raft of setbacks she's experienced since groundwater inundated her basement in July, however, is getting to be more than she can handle. Cherie didn't have a working furnace before the flood, something she hoped FEMA would be able to help her out with when they came to assess her house. But the federal agency isn't conducting its relief program in ways that work for Cherie. The dude called, left a message when I was at dialysis, and he was talking so fast I couldn't even figure out the number he wanted me to call him back at. So I need him to call me again. FEMA needs to call me again. Other than that, I've pretty much been forgotten about once they come and cleaned out the basement. So, And I don't mean that in a bad way. I know everybody's busy. She says the three-day-a-week dialysis regimen she's on isn't the only chronic health condition that makes heating this drafty old house with wood heat alone a dangerous thing for her. I do have end-stage COPD. And that's why I'm not medically necessary not to burn fires or wood smoke, have wood smoke, because it makes it hard to breathe. COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Basically, it makes it hard for Cherie to breathe. Cherie and I are sitting on an old sofa, 
listening to a mix of 50s pop, 80s rock, and classic Christmas carols. Yes, kiss, rock and roll all night. As we talk, she's surrounded by green oxygen tanks. She says she has received some help of late, like the local volunteers who put plastic over the windows to try to keep in the heat. But whatever other relief she thought would arrive after the flood hasn't made it to her home in West Burke. You feel alone, truthfully, and that's exactly how I feel. I feel like I come home, I sit on the couch, and I'm forgotten, truthfully, and it sucks. There's no bigger alone feeling than feeling like you're alone. Cherie supports herself mainly on the monthly check she receives from Social Security Disability Insurance. She says being low income had made life complicated before the flood. Now it's starting to feel impossible. It's getting harder for me to breathe, so it's getting harder to get that stuff done. Um, taking the trash out of the trash cans, lifting up high up above my head is getting a lot harder. I try to gauge Cherie's level of optimism about getting a furnace installed before the most extreme winter temperatures arrive in rural Caledonia County, so she can stop burning wood and, quite literally, breathe a little easier. But she takes my question in a different direction. What sort of, what like level of confidence do you have that you're going to be able to... Make it through the winter? If I don't have help, I'm not very confident I'm going to make it through the winter. I'll end up getting too tired and quitting. Cherie's situation is bleak. And there are people all across the state in similarly dire circumstances. Some of the folks in their corner are quite literally praying to God for help. Lord God, we thank you for uh, gathering us together today, Lord. We thank you for this food, Lord. And Lord, we pray that it would I'm in a vacant religious school, formerly run by Seventh-day Adventists, to enjoy lunch with the Hope Coalition, the recovery group that was pumping water out of the basement at the beginning of this episode. We're also joined by a crew of Baptists who drove up from Boston to help out for the day. There, there are still people in this area who are living without heat, without electricity. Pat Archambault is one of the local HOPE volunteers sitting around the table today. She's been putting in 40-plus hour weeks since the July flood hit. I know of a woman in Barrie who's in her 80s who is using what we know is a bad electrical panel that has been underwater, but it's her only source of heat, and she's living in her house. Pat has a profound sense of duty to the people she's trying to help. I go to bed at night, mm-hmm. and I worry about these people. I worry about them, and I go, are we going to get to them in time? And it becomes clear, as Pat talks about this stuff, that she's losing patience. She doesn't understand why FEMA won't cover all of the damage that was caused by flooding. She doesn't understand why the state isn't doing more to bring in out-of-state contractors to help with the backlog of plumbing and heating projects. And she doesn't understand why state agencies or philanthropic funds aren't making more money available to groups like HOPE. And it's beyond frustrating to me because everybody knew winter was coming. And there are people out there living without water and electricity and heat. And they're living in tents and they're living in campers 
and they're living in unsafe conditions, and people are going to die. And that's the reality. So if somebody's listening to you make that plea, you need to know what's happening here. And yeah. We need help doing something about it. We have no money. We've written for grants, and we're coming up against walls where they say, oh, we aren't releasing any money yet. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting till people die? What is it going to take? I want to take a minute here to acknowledge that the work that Pat and others are doing, it's mostly volunteer work. Vermonters helping Vermonters, neighbors helping neighbors. And a question I've been stuck on as I've been working on this story is, what should we make of this? There's so many individuals and small local organizations rallying to help each other out. Are these stories of triumph? Or should we read them as indictments of our governments and their inability to deliver aid to some of the neediest and most vulnerable disaster survivors? There's no way anyone can call that um, a model. That's coming up next. We'll be right back. Vermont's response to the July floods has been massively shaped by local volunteers and small organizations. Is this a triumph of the human spirit? Or is this an indictment of our governments and the lack of infrastructure in place to support those in the most vulnerable situations? I put that question to Sue Minter, who might have more experience with disaster recovery in Vermont than anyone else in the state. She served as chief flood recovery officer for Vermont after Tropical Storm Irene. I don't think anybody right now who's involved in really working on this recovery can say that the needs of people who have um, really been impacted, and there are hundreds, I believe, of folks who are living in homes in substandard conditions in the middle of winter. And there's no way anyone can call that um, a model. Sue is now helping oversee recovery efforts in central Vermont as director of a community action group in Barry City called Capstone. She says the volunteer-led recovery groups have been beacons of light during the most recent crisis. You know, whether you are handing out meals uh, at our food shelf or delivering them to folks, being actively involved in building a response and bringing volunteers to the floor and actually changing lives, that's where the light is. That's where the hope is. Still, she's frustrated. And she spent a lot of time wondering why it's been so difficult to get this right. Here's where she's landed. The way that government aid works in this country, especially for a disaster response, but almost all programs that are of emergency nature that we at Capstone work on, there are very narrow rules and requirements to determine if someone is eligible and uh, that these people need to fit into. And it takes time. Sue says Vermont was also in a different place during Tropical Storm Irene. A dozen years ago, there was more housing available for Vermonters. People could find alternatives. And now, preceding this disaster, we had already 
an extreme housing shortage since COVID on top of a housing, a homeless crisis. And I just consider this a housing disaster. The sort of silver lining, if you will, in this is that it forces you to reckon with these pre-existing gaps and cracks because people are hurting so badly and it's hurting people. Kari White is one of the founders of Curve, a recovery group in the Northeast Kingdom. Like the other groups, hers emerged in the immediate aftermath of the floods. Groups like Curve are required to become full-on bureaucratic entities in order to work with federal agencies like FEMA and to draw down grants to help people get as back to normal as possible. That means there's a lot more that goes into their work than draining basements and feeding neighbors. It didn't take me long to realize, oh, we need bylaws. Okay, we have to officially define our service area. We need to have a way that we run our meetings. We have have to have a way of recording membership and attendance. Um, We need to be able to have a a fiscal agent. Curve says the group has identified about 80 households in the Northeast Kingdom, households like Cherie's, that still need help recovering from all the flooding. Their unmet recovery needs total an estimated half million dollars. And that's after everything they've gotten from FEMA or the Small Business Administration or from flood insurance. But what Kari's finding is that the lasting impact of the floods extends far beyond those 80 homes. In terms of these disasters highlighting the systemic inequities that exist, I think they're just going to keep coming until we really fix the root cause of the problems, which is investing in in the infrastructure in rural environments and the relationships that it takes. And it's hard. It's really hard over 2,000 plus square miles, right, to, to feel and act like a unified region. Another recovery worker I talked to in the kingdom said they had a sort of epiphany doing this work. And what they realized is that poverty was the first disaster, COVID was the second disaster, And then the flood disaster came along and made everything worse. Kari knows that Curve won't solve those root problems in the short term, but in this new group that's formed, and the handful of others across the region, she sees a path for reform. There are a million different housing efforts happening here in the kingdom, but we need some sort of inventory and unified vision toward attacking this in an equitable, sustainable way. That conversation is now possible in a way it might not have been before. This brings me back to my conversation with Sophie Veltrup, today's winning question asker, in the second part of her curiosity. What locally driven solutions have been proven effective both for recovering and rebuilding better? So much, so much attention has been, and rightly so, on on mitigating climate change and reducing emissions. And absolutely, we need to put so much effort behind that. And I think climate resilience is just even more so at the forefront of my mind now. Climate resilience, building back better. These are phrases that come up a lot in discussions about flood recovery efforts. 
On a fundamental level, they have to do a shifting from a reactive model of support to a proactive one. How can we invest in Vermont, our physical infrastructure, as well as our community support systems, so we're stronger the next time this happens? Because, as we've seen this week, it will happen again. The Northeast sees about 60% more, quote, extreme precipitation events than it did in 1958. That's according to the Fifth National Climate Assessment. It's the largest increase of any region in the United States. On a local level, the work to strengthen community systems is unfolding in flood-damaged churches, empty school buildings, and a former police station on Main Street in downtown Barrie. Here's somebody. Hi. Hello. Barry Up is another long-term recovery group. They work mostly with flood survivors in the Granite City, which, by Governor Phil Scott's estimate, was the hardest-hit community in all of Vermont over the summer. About 10% of the city's housing stock was destroyed or damaged by the flooding, and even before, the percentage of people living in poverty there was more than double the rest of the county. Barry Up, like other recovery groups we've met, is involved in mold remediation and furnace installs and securing temporary housing options. But as the time horizon from the summer's disaster gets longer, Barry Up board member Pam Wilson says their strategies have evolved to become more proactive. It's a different kind of labor than, um, hey, call your strong friends and have them bring shovels. So the phase that we're in now is looking at how do we actually anticipate, support, and mobilize the work that's needed for residents who wouldn't be able to do this on their own. It's not just about getting enough money or enough contractors to do repair work. It's about connecting those resources to the people who need them most. That's the type of work that these local organizations are best positioned to do. Shauna Trader, the volunteer executive director at Barry Up, says the group is also looking to turn this strategy into a mobilizing force. So it's time to really get creative and caring and reimagine how we take care of people. And it's not just, that's not a critique on Barry City or the state of Vermont or the nation, but a critique on everything. And she says in order to compel local and state and federal institutions to more aggressively rectify those inadequacies, people are going to need to speak up. You know, we need foundational stuff, and that's a home. We need a space. We need a space to have dignity before we can launch into the greatness of what, what's, cap what's possible. And we're not going to get that if we don't get the policy and investment changes, you know, top to bottom. There is some significant help on the way to support some of this recovery work. A FEMA-funded grant program will pay for about a dozen case managers who will be embedded with recovery groups like Barry Up. They'll work directly with local organizations to help catalog the needs of the communities they serve, and a philanthropic fund called the Vermont Disaster Recovery Fund will disperse grants of up to $25,000 to subsidize the work. As for the work it will take to strengthen Vermont's infrastructure, we already have a useful reference point. In reporting over the summer, Vermont Public examined the flood mitigation efforts some towns made after Tropical Storm Irene. 
Things like fortifying riverbanks, expanding culverts, and buying out homes in low-lying neighborhoods. In general, those improvements worked, but they weren't enough. Today, officials are also considering redesigning affected towns and building out floodplains. If this year can teach us anything, it's that we don't have the luxury of choice when flooding is so frequent. People still need immediate aid. And Vermont needs more proactive planning so we don't find ourselves cleaning up the same messes over and over again. Like in Johnson. The post office I saw on my tour of the town last month finally reopened in its normal space a few weeks later. And then, just days after that, the latest round of flooding hit. It took on more water and then closed again. At the time of publish, the post office has partially reopened. Pam Wilson from Barry Up says this relentless cycle requires a new approach. We know that extreme weather events like this are happening frequently. We know that they're happening frequently enough that whatever previous systems were in place are not proving adequate for making survivors or flood-impacted residents whole. And what do you do about that? That is an open question for each community. It's an open question for the state. It's an open question for the country. It's an open question for a global human world to say, whose job is this? At the end of my reporting, I followed up with our question asker, Sophie. I needed to confess something to her. One of the things that's been difficult for me about this story is that, like, you're asking a question that, like, encourages us to find, like, hope and light and <laughs> solutions and promise. Um, and there's some of that, for sure. But, like, um, my takeaway from all the reporting so far is just how brutally difficult things still are for people. Yeah. Yeah, I think at the time that I asked the question, it was two months since the flood, approximately. And so I think a lot, I think I hadn't yet fathomed that we'd be where we are. I mean, I think it's a surprise to me now. And I think I asked that question from a place of like, will we still be talking about it enough in a couple months? Being here now, just like thinking about that long-term recovery, is like a completely different ballgame and a, certainly a different scale than I imagined it would be. I just thought that we'd have it figured out by winter. Thanks for listening to the show. And thanks to Sophie Veltrip for the great question. To find the latest news on flooding and flood recovery in Vermont, head to vermontpublic.org. You can find our show at bravelittlestate.org or on Instagram and Reddit at bravestatevt. 
Pete Hirschfeld reported this episode. It was produced and edited by the Brave Little State team, Sabine Pooks, Burgess Brown, and me, Josh Crane. Angela Evansy is our executive producer. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Lexi Krupp, Tom Drake, Sarah Henshaw, Reverend Dr. Wendy Jane Summers, and Megan Wayland. We have support from our station's sustaining members. If you liked what you heard today, head to bravelittlestate.org donate, or just tell your friends to listen. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. We'll be back in 2024 with more people-powered Vermont journalism. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.